All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to finish Colossians chapter 1 tonight. And uh, if you don't know where Colossians is, it's right in the middle of your New Testament. And there's no shame of using your table of contents to find that. Colossians, uh, this is our third week in Colossians. And um, if you don't know, Colossians is one of what we call, we call it the, one of the prison letters. That means that Paul wrote it in prison. Uh, there are four prison letters that Paul wrote. Uh, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, and Galatians. And um, those, are, those are considered the... Uh, Prison letters. So Paul is writing this from a prison cell. Just to give you some context, when you read about him like rejoicing and suffering, you know he is writing. He's probably shackled to the ground of a concrete prison cell. Um, so not the most ideal uh, conditions for writing a letter, and uh, yet the Lord speaks to us through this letter. Um, so what I want to think about uh, tonight is an, another, like last week, another just massive incomprehensible reality for the Christian life. Um, last week, we began by talking about the Grand Canyon and saying, like, trying to describe the supremacy of Christ last week was like trying to describe the Grand Canyon by looking at a picture. It's actually great, far harder than that by trying to describe the Grand Canyon just from looking at a picture. And I had never been to the Grand Canyon, and a few of you had been. And like my only experience of the Grand Canyon was just looking at that picture that we put up on the wall and saying, trying to describe the supremacy of Christ was like trying to describe to you what the Grand Canyon was like. We can't actually experience it fully unless we go there, right? So if last week on the supremacy of Christ, that he's over all things, if that was like the Grand Canyon, I'm going to compare the reality this week to the Amazon River, okay? So it's like trying to describe to you the Amazon River. Yes, that is, you know, I know it looks just like the James River, okay? So don't be deceived. Um, that is the Amazon River, and it's 4,000 miles long. 4,000 miles long, um, running across Brazil. Yeah, I have a map. You can put a map up. Uh, so it runs across um, Brazil into Peru, where our mission team was last week. Jason, looking at you, don't look behind you. Jason Brown's in the back. He just got back from Peru yesterday, so where our team is. So the Amazon runs through Peru. I actually learned, because I don't know science very well, the Amazon actually begins in the mountains in Peru and runs that way and empties into the Atlantic Ocean. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't, so there you go. Fun fact for the day. Okay, but... I'm going to, dis today, describing this reality, which is Christ being in you. That's the reality. Christ being in you is like me trying to describe to you what the Amazon River is like, um, because I have actually been to the Amazon River in eighth grade on a mission trip, okay? We went to Brazil. I don't have any pictures from that, okay? You do not want to see eighth grade Mark. I talked to you about that before. Eighth grade, on a mission trip in Brazil, we went on the Amazon River, I have a third map. Can you put that third map up there? And we were in this little tiny town called Santorim, which is, let's see if I can get to it without blowing the mics here. All right, Santorim is 
is like right there. This the third dot, one, two, three, the third dot. And all we did was just go like a little tiny blip on the map. We just went a little fraction of distance. And it was an overnight trip on the Amazon. And we slept in hammocks. Hey, hammock, gave one of those away today. We slept in hammocks on the boat, and it was awesome. But there's no way I could describe to you accurately what the Amazon River is actually like just from having been on this little tiny piece of it. Because it's 4,000 miles long, there's no way that I even understand what the Amazon River is like, even though I've experienced a tiny portion of it. Also, my memory is bad from then. We did go piranha fishing, and that was pretty cool. Okay, um, I do remember going over uh, blue water into brown water, and they did not mix, which was really cool. Okay, But other than that, I can't really describe much else. All right, What we do know is that the Amazon River runs through all of Brazil, and this whole Amazon River basin is directly affected by the Amazon. Okay? It affects everything it touches. There's a, the largest rainforest in the world. is all in this little area right here, the Amazon rainforest. And it just affects everything, everything it touches. And it just winds through the whole country, and it winds through Peru. And it's just amazing. And trying to describe that to you, trying to describe that to you is impossible. And so trying to describe what it means that Christ himself, the one who created the Grand Canyon and the one who commands every heartbeat that you have right now, he's creating every new heartbeat, that that creator lives in you. Like the reality and the implications of that and how that should affect our everyday life, how it should affect how we go to work, how we just talked about that, like how that affects us really is impossible to describe. And it's not because there's some sort of limitation in the Bible. It's just there's a limitation in us, right, to understand that and experience that. The only way to really know that is to walk closely with Christ, to experience the power of him being in you, right, to walk close with him. So we want to think about this because if we really got our minds and our hearts around this, the fact that Christ is in us, this changes everything about us, just like the Amazon River changes everything it touches Christ in us should change everything about us wherever we go. And whatever we say and whatever we do, whatever we think, it should change everything about who you are. It is literally the most important thing about you, that Christ is in you. And so if we think about that, that should change our lives. Yet we struggle to think about that. We struggle on a regular basis to think that the spirit of the living God is in me. And it seems like if we, if we just thought about that, it would help us be better witnesses, help us be better students, help us be better siblings, help us read God's word more. We would hunger after him more. Just having that reality in our, in our hearts. Yeah, because we don't, we, we wander from Christ when we don't think about this. We, we walk into inconsistent patterns of life. We get trapped in addictions. We get anxious, we get afraid, uh, we get insecure because we don't think about the fact that Christ, my Savior, actually lives in me. So we want to dive deep into this, right? Because um, I feel like if we can get our hearts around this, the, the purpose of tonight would be that you would leave here filled with great hope that you can change that you can grow in Christ because Christ is in you, and that your friends can change because Christ is in them, your Christian friends. 
and that you would leave here filled with hope because the power of change comes from the living Christ who is in you and in them. And this should build us up as a church. Okay, so that's where we're headed. So here's your your main truth. The greatest certainty in your life, the greatest certainty in your life is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now that comes from 127 directly. We'll read that in just a minute. The greatest certainty in your life is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now I use the word certainty because... I could have used the word promise, I could have used the word truth, I could have used the word reality, but using the word certainty kind of roots us in the reality that we can always bank on this certain promise of God, that it is always there. We do not have to doubt, no matter how we feel during the day, of this certainty that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. So this should affect us in two ways, we'll get to that. Let's read our text first. And then we'll talk about this together. We're going to be in verse 24 to 29. Paul says this, And now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery of hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, here you go, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So, we're going to unpack this in two ways. All right, we're going to see two certainties from this passage. First certainty, certainty number one, point one, Christ in you gives a reason to suffer. Christ in you gives a reason to suffer. Look at verse 24. Paul shows us that he sees suffering as a responsibility. So, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. All right? He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And down in verse 25 he says, uh, he calls it a stewardship from God that he has been given. Okay, so he sees it as a responsibility, a stewardship, uh, something that he is responsible with. And this stewardship, this responsibility is to suffer for Christ by suffering for the church, suffering for believers. Um, We know that Paul suffers a lot to bring the gospel to unbelievers, but here he's describing something different. There's a unique kind of suffering here. There's a suffering for Christians, and I think that's unique. We think a lot about, yeah, I'm going to suffer to bring the gospel to non-Christians. Right? They're going to reject me. I'll suffer persecution or I'll get mocked or laughed at or whatever, right? People are suffering persecution all over the world for, being, for bringing the gospel to those places. And that's certainly happening all the time and it's certainly happening with Paul. And he's talking about something even more specific. He is suffering literally in a prison cell to try to bring the gospel to the churches that are already established to build them up. 
And I think this is unique for us. We see this in this kind of weird phrase where he says he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in verse 24. He says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, but then he says, for the sake of his body, that is the church. What does it mean that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? That sounds bad, doesn't it? It sounds like there's something lacking in the sufferings of Christ. But that's actually not what it means. It doesn't mean that there's anything lacking in Christ and his sufferings. So the sufferings of Christ on the cross have fully paid for sinners. Right? There's nothing insufficient. There's nothing lacking in God's ability to save on the cross. Okay? So your debt is paid in full. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ and you have believed that Christ has died on the cross, risen from the dead, then his sufferings, his afflictions, have paid for you in full. You have, there's nothing left to be paid. There's nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions. And that's good news for us, right? There's nothing else to be done. Christ doesn't have to suffer anymore. But this is a different kind of suffering. All right? This suffering that he's talking about is the suffering that Christians experience to spread the gospel. Okay? And in, in this sense, we actually fill up the sufferings of Christ by continuing to suffer to advance the gospel because Christ is no longer suffering, is he? Christ has already suffered and his suffering is completed. And he paid for us. And now he is reigning and ruling at the right hand of the throne of God and now sends us out and our suffering is now completing the suffering that he has already done so that the gospel can spread. Let me put it to you like this, and this illustration will not do this justice, obviously. I'm going to talk about hockey, and this is about the cross. So those two things should not go together. But anyway, when my dad let me play hockey when I was in eighth grade, seventh grade, okay? Middle school, middle schoolers, I was your age, and I played ice hockey, okay? It was pretty fun. Lived in Florida, played ice hockey, all right? And um, yeah, Florida has ice rinks. I didn't know if you knew that, but we, uh, we would get up really early in those of you who know what you know, traveling for sports is like, you get this. He would get up really early to take me to practice. And we would drive like 35 minutes, 40 minutes to get to where the practice was. Okay? And then he would buy me all the equipment. And hockey equipment is extremely expensive. I don't know why it's so expensive. It is crazy expensive. And we bought all basically used equipment. Okay? And it reeked. Because that's just what we could afford. Because I was a pastor's kid, and I can't buy new equipment. All right, So we bought used equipment, and it was still expensive. Then to pay for the league was crazy expensive. And my dad did all of this and drove us. So basically, he has experienced a kind of suffering, right? Time, energy, money, gas money, all so I can try to live out this little childhood dream that lasted for like three years. All right, and then it died. When I was about 11 years old, I realized, oh, I actually am not going to go into the NHL. Okay, that's when I figured it out. All right, because I wasn't good. That's how I knew. All right, that's a, that was the dead giveaway. I wasn't good. But my dad let me live this little dream out. So he paid the money. He drove me to games and practice, and he suffered. And then when I get on the ice, then there's a kind of suffering that he no longer experiences that now I experience. Right? He has suffered to get me to play, and now I suffer all the rest of playing. I suffer the fatigue, I suffer the sweat, I suffer the tears, I suffer the, the body checks that I got on the ice. One, one dude 
lit me up so hard. My back of my head hit the ice so hard. I think I blacked out. I don't know what happened. He checked me so hard, and you're not supposed to check in peewee hockey. And he just lit me up. <laughs> and so I experienced like real suffering, real pain. And in that kind of sense, I am filling the kind of suffering that my dad cannot fulfill. My dad fulfilled all this kind of suffering to get me to play. And now I suffer by playing, which was filling up the goal that he intended for me to fill up. It was to try to get hurt and, and sweat and have fatigue and risk the injury and all that kind of stuff, right? If you play sports, you, you get that. When we think about spreading the gospel, Christ has suffered to give us the gospel, and we now suffer to spread the gospel. Because Christ is not suffering, and now we are suffering to spread the gospel. And there's a uniqueness about this kind of suffering, because we're talking here about suffering for Christians. Suffering to help Christians mature in their faith, which I think is very important. We do not think often about suffering for the church, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It says here in our text, he says that uh, he suffered in verse 26, uh, I'm sorry, suffered in verse 25 for the church. And then he says in verse 25, this was a stewardship from God that was given to me for you, namely believers, okay, to make known to the saints in verse 26. This is for the church. So how do we suffer to help one another become more like Christ? What would this even look like? It's when we lay our lives down spiritually, physically, emotionally to help each other follow Jesus or to carry one another's burdens or to be patient with one another to walk with one another through crisis, through turmoil, right? What it might look like for you is suffering for another believer might be long nights sitting with someone as they work through a family crisis. It might be being patient with someone as they overcome a very difficult sin and just being patient with them. It might be lots of energy, emotional energy, physical energy, spiritual energy to invest in this person. That's a kind of suffering for believers. Uh, it might be, a, it might be um, laboring in prayer over them. Prayer is hard work. And there's a type of suffering in prayer for someone. So when we think about pouring ourselves out, serving them, sacrificing time, sacrificing energy, maybe even giving of our finances or bringing them a meal, these are all kinds of sacrificial sufferings to help other people in the church follow Christ, become more like Christ. And that's what we're talking about here. It's a kind of selflessness toward another believer to help them move down the field of Christian maturity. So why would we do all of this? Like, Why would we suffer for another believer in this way? Well, we can suffer, so we have a responsibility, right, to suffer. We also see a reason to suffer in verse 27. In verse 27, it says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We suffer for believers because we believe in the Christ in them has the power to change them. So we will lay down our lives and we will spend long nights and time and energy and money, not because we think our efforts will save them or our efforts will change them, but because we think that our efforts can be a means of gospel grace used by God for the power of Christ to change them. 
that makes sense? We believe in the Christ that is in them can move in their life. And so we will gladly rejoice in our sufferings to help this brother or sister in Christ. And this is biblical. So in, if you go to Philippians 2.17, I don't, I don't think I have this for the screen, but if you were to go back to Philippians 2.17, Paul says that he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. He says, I am poured out as an offering, a sacrifice for your faith. This is a biblical reality because we believe that Christ can grow them. Let me give you another example. I had a buddy um, in... Um, in Starkville, Mississippi, in my early 20s, and I got his permission to share this with you. So when we were, when we were in our 20s, he was struggling with a specific sin. And, um, and he seemed to be making very little progress in overcoming this sin. And we would meet up at a coffee shop, and we would sit there, and we would get up early, and we would meet together, and I would get up early to sit with him and talk to help him overcome this, keep him accountable. Sometimes I'd wake up and show up at the coffee shop, and he wouldn't make it for whatever reason. And it took a long time, months, years of laboring and praying and getting accountability. And But this was a great friend of mine. And... It was not a burden to me to show up early morning for this brother in my life, to suffer alongside him. I never felt once, I don't think, ever burdened by that. Because, number one, he was my friend, but I knew that Christ can change him. I knew that Christ in him, I knew he was a believer, and I knew Christ in him can help him overcome and walk away from this sin. And I was happy to walk alongside him and help him. Even if sometimes he didn't show and I get to do my quiet time by myself at the coffee shop. And then he texts me and says, sorry, I can't make it. Now, it's easy for us to get impatient, frustrated, and give up on people. And if our tendency is to get frustrated, impatient, and give up on people, it's because we've lost sight of one really important reality that Christ is in them and Christ can change them and if we think that it's our efforts that can change them or help them we will get frustrated and we will walk away but if we are confident in the Christ that is in them to change them then we will keep showing up we will keep suffering we will keep walking alongside we will keep drawing them back away from their wandering. See, as a Christian, we have a responsibility with our fellow brothers and sisters to always, always, guys, and hear me, please. And I know, teenagers, this is, t this is hard because of the relationships that are all woven together and it's a struggle. And Like, as a Christian, we do not give up on people. We do not give up on people, especially people who are in the household of God, especially believers. If Christ is in that person, we have an obligation to not give up on them. The gospel demands that we never give up on them. 
And it's so easy to get frustrated and impatient and, and just begin to say, this person is a problem in my life. This person is adding nothing to me but burden. It's time for me to cut them out of my life. That's what the culture will tell you to do, to cancel people, to rid them out of your life. You hear this phrase, toxic people. Get rid of toxic people. I just want you to know that getting rid of toxic people is worldly wisdom, not gospel wisdom. That is not a biblical reality because we are far more toxic to God than people are to us, and he decided to die for us and make his home in us. We need to think about that and live in that reality. So, students, you can give up on someone when Christ gives up on you. You can give up on someone when Christ gives up on you. Now, the reality is Christ will never give up on you. And so because Christ will never give up on you, you can never give up on someone else. Why? Because your efforts will do it? No, because you believe in Christ in them, the hope of glory. The power of the living God is in them to save them and change them. So if you know someone who is wandering in the faith, keep pursuing them. If you know someone who is discouraged, keep encouraging them. If you know someone who is a doubter, keep pointing them to truth. If you know someone who is a hypocrite, keep lovingly confronting them with gentleness. If you know someone who is immature, keep walking beside them in patience. If you know someone who is uh, insecure, keep loving them no matter what they do. If you know someone who is hopeless, keep strengthening them. If you know someone who is inconsistent, be a consistent presence in their life. Don't give up on people because Christ hasn't given up on you and he won't because Christ is in you. Certainty number two, Christ in you gives hope for change. Christ in you gives hope for change. So this is kind of still thinking about the reality that Christ can change us. He says in verse 27, he says, he calls it the mystery hidden for ages and generations and now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of, the, of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He calls it a mystery. Now mystery doesn't mean like what we would think of mystery, um, like mysterious or unknown. Have you ever seen that show, Mysteries of the Unknown? Has anybody ever seen that show? It's on Nat Geo, I think, is that right? Nat Geo? discover something i don't know okay mysteries of the unknown like where they go to unknown places it's not that's not what we're talking about with mystery we're not talking about something that's unknown and we're trying to discover and it's very mysterious we don't know what happened right it's not sherlock holmes it's not what's happening here all right mystery speaks of something that was hidden and is now revealed that's how the bible speaks of mystery something that was hidden and is now revealed and christ is the mystery okay so in the old testament Christ was concealed, and now in the New Testament, Christ is revealed. Okay, so the whole Bible is pointing to Christ. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 2, if you look down, it says God's mystery, which is Christ. If you go over to 4.3, 4.3, he says um, that you would open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So mystery, just speaking of Christ, who was now revealed as the fullness of God's redemptive plan in the Bible.
right? Now, Paul's bringing this up because he's confronting a false teaching in the Colossian church. There was a false teaching that mixed pagan worldly practices with Jewish practices, and they kind of wedded them together. Call that syncretism. Okay, that's a fun word you can learn. Syncretism, when you blend two faiths together. Together? I just messed that up. Okay, words are hard. Together, all right? You mix them together, you ruin both, and you've created something worse, all right? So they've mixed pagan practices with Jewish practices and said that the pagans were having these kind of visions and out-of-body experiences and dreams, and they said real worship and real Christianity looks like this. You have to have these miraculous visions and experiences with angels and out-of-body experiences, and the way to achieve those is then over here by following these Jewish laws and dietary laws and keeping certain festivals and keeping certain calendar days. You had to do this to experience this, and this was true worship. Paul is saying no to both. He's saying, no, you don't need an out-of-body experience or an emotional high because you have Christ in you, and you don't need to keep Jewish law because Christ is in you. He is your holiness. Holiness is Christ in you, the hope of glory, and you don't need an emotional high. So you need to be very weary of hearing this phrase like, um, well, I just didn't, I just don't feel God. I just, don't ex- I just didn't experience him. Now, if you're a Christian, I, I understand what you mean, okay? So I'm not beating you up if you've ever felt the way I certainly have. But what we need to do is we need to not put stock in emotional experiences, and we need to put our stock in the word of truth, Christ in his word, all right? We need to put more stock in this than my feelings. My feelings will go up and down. You're a teenager. Your feelings will go up and down 100 times today right? That's just the nature of it. Our emotions are fickle and fleeting and changing all the time. Christ is constant, and the truth of his word is constant, and he is in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You don't have to look anywhere else for this reality to be true in your life. Now, there's, there's truth in Christ living in your heart, right? Christ is in you. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we talk about we we accepted Christ into our hearts or our lives. Like There's some biblical reality to that. Christ lives in me. Ephesians 3.17. I think we have that for the screen, right? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ in you. If Christ is in us, That means a couple of things for us. It means that maturity, real Christian maturity, comes through Christ. We don't need anything else for salvation, and we don't need anything else for true growth in the Christian life. We don't need self-help books. We don't need Jewish law. We don't need, you know, an influencer's new wisdom or habits. We just need Christ in us, the hope of glory. And this means a couple of things. It means that Christ is present with us. He is not absent. He is present with you. It means that he is personal to you. He is not distant from you. And it means that he is active in you. He is not lying dormant. He's not a dormant volcano ready to erupt. So, so often we think of Jesus like we think of car insurance. He's only there when we get in an accident. That's his only use. When I'm in an accident, now the insurance kicks in. That's how Jesus works for me. Jesus is not insurance. 
Jesus is the gas in the car. He's, he's what it runs on. He is what your life runs on. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Without Christ, you can do nothing. The gas, with no gas in the car, the car stays in the garage and goes nowhere. Without Christ, nothing good happens in your life. You are hopeless without Christ. And Christ in us means that we can change. And if Christ is in us, and he is changing us, and he is working in us, that means that we are never without hope. We're never stuck. We're never, we're never, um, we're never unchangeable, unredeemable, unforgivable. Students, I don't know what you've all done. And I don't know what addictions you have or habits you have or homes you have. But I know this, that you're not stuck in that situation. If you begin to believe the lie that, that I'm never going to change, then we have lost sight of the promise that Christ is in us. If you begin to believe the lie that my friend or my family member won't change and can't change, we are believing a lie from Satan to take our eyes off of the truth that Christ is in us, the hope of glory, the hope, the present real hope of change from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ. So do not give up on your friends. Who do you need to go after after this message is over this week? Who do you need to text, call, or see tomorrow and set up a meeting to go after them and not give up on them and to keep loving them and keep being patient to them and keep walking beside them and never giving up on them because Christ is in them. Christ can free you from any bondage, any pain. He can give you peace. He can give you self-control to fight your sin. He can give you encouragement if you're depressed. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory, that does all these things. So, verse 28 says, Him we proclaim, right? Him we proclaim. It's Christ that we proclaim so that everyone can be mature in Christ. So we need to take this, we need to go out, and we need to proclaim Christ, the only one who has the power to change people and to save them from their sin and free them from their bondage and free them from their addictions and sinful habits. And can we just be honest with each other? No one in the room is perfect. No one has their stuff together. Everyone is a mess. Everyone. Because we're all sinners. And yet we come into this place and we try to put on a good face as if our life is fine. And we don't have to do that. Because Christ has already died on the cross so you're forgiven. And Christ is in you, so you always have the power to change and move forward and to repent. And tomorrow's a new day with new mercy, and you can grow. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. So who do you need to, who do you need to meet up with, call, text, and go after them? And don't give up. Keep proclaiming Christ so that they can know Christ and become mature like him. Let's pray together. We'll keep singing. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. And we want to worship you with our life. We want to praise you with our life. And we want to be used by you to be your hands and feet 
to go after people who are wandering, to not give up on people. Because Christ is in us, the hope of glory. You can give us peace. You can give us self-control. You can give us faith. You can give us love. You can give us joy because Christ is in us. We are always, always full of hope. So help us now in Jesus' name. Amen.